0: Welcome to Grayson Thirty on WERALP Arlington ninety six point seven FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host Sal Dietry. Sal, you excited about tonight?
1: Ed, uh, tonight indeed. We're joined by Oz Guinness, a well-known Christian scholar, social philosopher, and a descendant of the Guinness brewing family, a family near and dear to my heart. Uh, while his, you know, Oz is is an incredible example of finding one's higher purpose he uh, was born in china in uh, 1941 the son of medical missionaries while there the family experienced an incredible upheaval and a time of great turbulence uh, he returned to england at the age of nine while his parents remained under house arrest in china he went on to achieve incredible things studying at the universities of london and at oxford He's written extensively about religious faith, its role in society, having authored 25 books, including uh, The Calling, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. That's something. Tonight we're going to spend a lot of time with Oz Guinness. Uh, He's also served as a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute.
0: Oz, welcome to Grace in 30.
2: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you.
0: So let's dive right in. You've uh, said that the three deepest human longings are for meaning, identity, and purpose. And the most dynamic source of each of these is the biblical notion of calling. So spend some time uh, talking about that.
2: Well, you just take, say, identity. You have the notion around today with the openness of American economically and philosophically. You take, say, social constructionism. You can be whoever you want to be this sort of thing, that everyone can make themselves. But obviously that's wrong, and the deepest sense of identity is coming to know who we are because our Creator made us. And when we discover that, you get into the real sense of meaning of life, the real purpose, and so on. And you can see how many of today's ideas are really foolish. And in America, there's what I call the frustration gap between the promise of all these philosophies and the lack of fulfillment, because many of them are simply impossible. So the deepest answers are in understanding who we are when the Lord calls us and we grow to be who he made us to be and intended us to be.
1: I think your point is that some of these things come in the simplest of ways, right? Helping a neighbor, finding fulfilling things in our lives that that don't require, uh, you know, the things we see on TV or sort of to covet uh, you know, things that we see uh, all the time in life.
2: No, that's right, absolutely. And we're promised all sorts of things by Vanity Fair, some of which are quite impossible. And we need to know what's impossible and what's possible, and that's a life of much deeper contentment.
0: So you make a distinction in your writings about primary and secondary calling. Um, spend a few minutes uh, talking about that, the distinction.
2: Well, you know, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and that's one of the distinctions that they made. In other words, the primary call is the call by the Lord, to the Lord, for the Lord. Now, if we ask what that means, as you look, say, at the Gospels and the way Jesus called people, I think it means we're called to know and to love and trust Him. In other words, the heart of it is relationship. Then we're called, secondly, to live His way, the way of Jesus. And thirdly, we're called to share the faith we have with others and introduce them to him too, Great Commission. That's the primary call. But what the Reformers call the secondary call is everything we do in response to that, including, but not solely, our work. So that's the secondary call. So the primary call, every follower of Jesus, every Christian shares that. But the secondary call, we're all different, because we are different and the things we're doing in life are very different. So we share the primary call, but we're different when we discover what it is. this our uh, secondary calling, as the Reformers put it. Before the Reformation, leisure was considered higher than work. Work was a dirty necessity. But the wealthy people, or say the aristocrats of the mind in scholarship and so on, they didn't need to work. But part of the glory of the Reformation rediscovering the biblical view was calling includes everything, including work. So your occupation is a part of your vocation. Now the trouble was, that was so revolutionary, it gave a dignity to work and so on, that people started to use the word occupation and vocation interchangeably. So that what you did, your job, was your vocation, which of course it was, but there's far more to it than that. And then when the term was secularized, you have things today like vocational colleges or vocational aptitude testing and so on, which has nothing to do with the Lord at all. And we've got to recover the word and really insist there's no calling unless there's a caller. You can use the word vocation or calling, but it means zero unless there's a caller. But vocation and calling are the same thing.
0: So I've heard you say that you know, when you advise young people uh, to, to look for a job that they would do if they didn't need a job, correct?
2: Well, to look to a job that's uh, that really fits the gifts God has given them. If you look at Matthew 25, he gave to each of them according to their ability. You know, some of us are good with our minds, some of us with our hands, some are leaders, some are followers, some are engineers, some are computer scientists, we're all different. And the ideal is to be able to find a job, a paid job, that fits who we are. And the trouble, say, with a midlife crisis, someone in their 40s or who says, you know, I felt like a square peg in a round hole. They've chosen a job or even a career because it looked promising, lucrative or whatever, or other people were doing it, their parents wanted them to do it, but it didn't fit who they were. Now, not everyone in the world, of course, often in many other countries where people are poor, they they simply have to do the job that's at hand. Whatever their parents and grandparents did, they have to do. But in the West, everyone, middle class or above, had the great privilege of choosing jobs that more or less fit them. And it's important to think it through before you
0: start. What advice do you have for people that you know, they can't choose? I mean, it's as you were answering the one question, I feel like we're in the pre-reformation period right now people really are pursuing leisure and they they see that as the ultimate goal Um, but it seems to be changing there's more and more movements where people are trying to find higher purpose in their work and and even people that are doing you know jobs that seem low we always talk about different people that we have guests we've had or we've talked about on the program there's one woman who's been cleaning an office building for 60 years in New York, and it's just what she does. She's incredibly joyful in what she does and sets an incredible example for people. What kind of advice would you give to people who are trying to figure this out, especially those who just, they really don't feel like they have a choice. They have to have the job they've got and pay the bills. What would you tell them to do in search of this calling?
2: Well, of course, that was the situation of most people, say, in the New Testament time. And so you have the extreme case where Paul talks about slaves doing their callings before their masters as unto the ultimate master, the Lord. In other words, they had zero freedom, zero choice in that case, not just limited, zero. But he says even slaves doing their slaving as unto the Lord, not to their immediate master, they're they're raising the whole dignity of their work. And you can see that was true. The Reformation was a wonderful hymn by George Herbert, the poet at the time of the Reformation, he talks about people sweeping floors, doing it as unto the Lord. And he says it's like what was called the philosopher's stone, the old belief that you found a stone that could turn everything to gold. And Herbert is saying, look, if you, even if you're a floor sweeper, doing it for the glory of the Lord as a calling, it turns even drudgery into something that's higher than the mere menial and the humdrum. So we've got to be realistic. And the trouble is today in America particularly people higher, middle class and above, we have this notion now of the theology of the sweet spot. That was you do what's you, and it's all about you and self-fulfillment and so on. And it's become another form of narcissism. And that's the furthest thing from the real notion of calling. So your question's a great one.
0: So we, you, in your writings, you talk a bit about—let's uh, drill down a little bit on the, the parable of the talents, because you, you talked about service, stewardship, entrepreneurship, and accountability. Some people might be surprised to hear the word entrepreneurship discussed when, when we talk about the parable of the talents.
2: Well, the others are pretty radical, too. Service is, you know, he says he called his servants, and the word there is slave. Now, you didn't have chattel slavery in the scriptures. You have indentured servitude which is different, but that word is radical as also the word stewardship. In other words, in the biblical idea, everything is ultimately the Lord's and we're mere trustees. The really radical one is the one that people often miss out, the entrepreneurialism. But if you think of the parable, it says in both the versions that there's no supervision, no micromanagement, no detailed instruction. The master gives the talents, the pounds, one, two, five, ten, and leaves they're not told what to do in other words they're given the gifts and they have to get on with it so calling is different from guidance guidance is specific God guides us to do this don't do that the scriptures are full of things we should do and things we shouldn't do that's guidance but the Lord doesn't guide every detail of our lives and he's made us responsible and free and we are entrepreneurs of life. In other words, we have a vision, we have a venture, we take risks, we calculate costs, and we try and bring glory to him in our callings. And that's, that's really entrepreneurial. So I think we've got to rescue the word entrepreneurial from the business community. Thank God there are business entrepreneurs, my son is. But people of faith are entrepreneurs in a deeper, although a rather different way
1: you know let's let's take a step back I mean if someone's listening and they're they' you know let's say that they're you know they they may attend church but not often right and they're sitting there thinking how do I kind of take this this very first step in this you know maybe they're unhappy in their job maybe they're 25 years into a, a family a house a career what's the very first step you'd see a practical step for someone to begin to find value in their work Is is it maybe offering a simple prayer maybe they're not at that step how can they examine their daily work and try and find some, start digging at that gold we've been talking about?
2: Well, obviously it depends on people knowing and trying to follow the Lord. So Christians are those who follow Him. He says, follow me, and we follow. So it, it, it does assume that. So you're looking to the Lord, not just looking into yourself or making something up for yourself. But I put it like this. I, I mentioned the primary call. Is called call to Him— to live his way, and to share the faith. Well, that's pretty simple, and there's lots on that in the Gospels. How about the secondary calling? Well, it's not quite so clear, except in the parable of the talents and the pounds. but I put it this way. What are the talents? Well, first, people need to think this through for themselves. First, what are the gifts that each of us has been born with? Because we've all got different gifts. We're good at some things, not good at others. So think first of a giftedness, the things we've been born with. And then secondly, think of all the cultural benefits we each have. We've grown up in certain families. We've been to certain schools. We've been to a certain college. We live in a certain country. For instance, you just take all our listeners, I imagine, Americans. Americans grow up with a sense of a can-do spirit. It's in the air. It's in your mother's milk in this country. If we were in many countries of the world, even say my own country, England, you make a suggestion, oh, we've never done it that way. Oh, that's impossible. The American can-do spirit is common here, and it's part of the cultural background that the young Americans have growing up. But then there's a third thing that's part of our talents, the circles of influence in which we move. We all have certain family members. We all have certain neighbors. We all have certain colleagues at work. We're not responsible for the world, but we are responsible for the circles in which we move. Now, put all those together, giftedness, cultural background and benefits we come from, and the circles we move in. These are the things we should be saying, Lord, you've given these to me. How can I take these gifts and maximize them, multiply them to your glory through the whole of my life. And then you start having an inkling of what your life is really about.
1: And so to your point is, is perhaps to sit down and, and document this, right? Write down, and, you know, yeah. who, who are my friends? Where, where do, am I in these areas? And, you know, I think as, as you say, sort of to, to summarize, you know, uh, you need a, a sure foundation before you can start building the house. So maybe that first Absolutely. step is to, to map it out and sort of shore that up. And then you can move forward and start building. I mean, that I liked what you said in all those areas, because it takes all of that to sort of institute or to sort of facilitate change.
2: And of course, turning them all into prayer, Lord, this is whom I am before you, and I want to serve you with these gifts and care for these friends, these neighbors, these colleagues, and so on. Be very specific about it, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Oz, in your 2010 book, The Last Christian on Earth, uh, you wrote, and I'm quoting here, in the United States, where evangelicals, the people of the good news, are still strong numerically, they become one of the shallowest, noisiest, and most corrupt parts of the Christian church, bringing down an unprecedented avalanche of disdain on their heads, almost none of which has anything to do with Jesus. I'll tell you, I was amazed when I read that sentence, the, the, the amount of insight in that, A very open-ended question. What's wrong with the Christian Church in America today?
2: Well, how do you put that in a sentence? But If you had to, (laughs) I would say the American Church is weak because it's worldly. It's more shaped by American culture and what the Bible calls the world than it is by the Word. And this is the scandal of the American Church. If you look at the European churches in almost every country, maybe with the exception of Poland— the churches are a minority, sadly, for various historical reasons. They're a minority. But in this country, the church is a huge majority. You take, say, comparison with wonderful groups like, say, our Jewish friends, less than 2% of America. Or people we disagree with, say, like the LGBT activists, they're less than 2% of America. Christians, you know, they're at least far more than 70% of America. And yet there are tiny groups in in the U.S. that have far more cultural influence than Christians do. And the simple fact is that the salt has lost its saltiness. The light isn't any longer light-bearing. Now, we could break it down and look at this, that, and the other, what's behind that sentence you, you read. But you can see much of the American church is weak culturally, theologically, spiritually, because it's worldly.
0: So when do you think the, the real uh, decline, the steep decline, started happening? I mean, things like this happen insidiously over time. I mean, I have this experience in, in a failed marriage. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over many weeks and months and years uh, when it reached a point of, of separation. What, what do you think? What are the key events? What's, where did this really start to turn south for, for people of faith in the country?
2: Well, I would say you're you're absolutely right, and you described that well, the way it sort of slowly builds up and people are unawares. And you can say right down to the 1950s, the previous Christian consensus held everything together, so people didn't notice the dry rot that was spreading. Then the 60s, the dramatic counterculture, a convulsive decade socially, just shattered many of the things which had grown hollow, and in many cases hypocritical takes say race relationships challenged by the civil rights movement and so suddenly an explosion of anti-christian thinking post-christian thinking of rapid diversification and so on and then christians woke up you take say evangelicals right through the 60s the most radical decade in the whole century most evangelicals were asleep they weren't engaged at all i remember Coming my first visit to this country is 68. I only met one Christian who really understood the 60s, and that was Carl Henry. And most people were still into their worlds, which had been held together by the consensus. And then the wake-up year was 73. You had Watergate, Roe v. Wade, the OPEC crisis, and suddenly within a couple of years, the rise of moral majority in the Christian right. And many evangelicals, not all, thank God, they swung from a overly pietistic faith to an overly politicized faith. And they had problems on the other side, sadly. But again, there wasn't enough thinking Christianly and how we should really engage the culture in a better and a deeper way.
0: So has it been steadily progressing downward for 40, 50 years? Or have there been you know, periods of... Oh,
2: no, not all downwards. And I, I often say, you know, if we had longer the generalizations about the church and the culture are often discouraging, but the exceptions are magnificent. So you look at the rot, say, in American preaching, and then you thank God for the Rick Warrens and the Tim Kellers and others. And, and you know, to every generalization, there are magnificent exceptions. You take something like the International Justice Mission, which grew out of our church under Gary Hogan, a magnificent organization. And there are many other wonderful exceptions i'm not the slightest bit gloomy or discouraged but we've got to face facts and look realistically at the wide of the eye at the real problems
0: so how would you describe the church today would you call it uh, i mean or, or the country today would you call it uh would you go as far as to say post-christian in some sense i mean i know many people seventy percent of people identify as christian but are, are, are people truly believing and followers of Christ, or have we reached some sort of, you know, I don't know what, what term could you could use, Laodicean, post-Christian, whatever? How, how would you describe it?
2: Well, you'd have to split different parts of the country down in different ways, but you take, say, ideas. The universities, the press, and media, and many of the nation's elites are decisively post-Christian. There's no question of that. And you can think of political correctness, social constructionism, the sexual revolution, I mean, you take, say, the sexual revolution. Where does it go back to? Not to the American Revolution. It has nothing to do with the American Revolution. It goes back to the French Revolution and the ideas of Rousseau and the Marquis de Sade, the later people like Wilhelm right And if you read any of those people, you know that for them, the ultimate challenge is the church, and their victory will be when the church is finally defeated. And you can see that. Those parts of the culture that are given over to that are decisively not just post-Christian but anti-Christian. Now, is the whole of America post-Christian? No, thank God, no. And if Christians are to move out responsibly and powerfully, uh, things could be turned around.
1: Look, let's let's get upbeat on this for a minute. Uh, you know, t- talk to us about the uniqueness of, of Christian faith in your mind today, uh, and some of the joys that, that you are seeing out there. And a couple examples, if you will, people you've met who who are trying to implement this practice in their work. Maybe they're the the heads of companies. I can think of three or four in this area who openly will say on their company website, look, I, here are the charities I'm involved with. And most of them are faith-based. And they'll say, look, I don't have all the money in the world, but if you're suffering, call me. Right? That's rare to see, but you do see examples of this starting to emerge. You know, yeah. Oz, tell us what, what you see as the uniqueness of Christian faith and some of the positive things you're seeing currently.
2: Well, I worked at the Trinity Forum with many business and political leaders, and I could name it, would be invidious to name them by name. Many well-known corporate leaders who are wonderful followers of Jesus make an incredible difference. But let me put it like this. The greatness of our Western civilization and of America's leadership in the West is its foundational basis in a strong view of human dignity, a high view of freedom, of equality, of community, and all sorts of things like this. At the moment, the West, and certainly America too, is a cut-flower civilization. The movements I mentioned that are post-Christian are trying to undercut the basis of the Christian faith, which is the roots of these things. But without the gospel, these things will die. And that means very simply that we, who are Christians and also our friends who are Jews, we are the champions of human dignity, of freedom, of equality, and many of these great things, and we should stand for them with courage and with confidence. This is a tremendous moment. Of course, the great strength of a Christian faith is our belief that it is, in fact, true. We don't argue for it because it's numerically strong or because, quote, it works, Yes, it works, but it works because it's true. It's not true because it works. So this is an incredible moment for those who know the Lord. God is greater than all. He can be trusted in all situations. We should have faith in him, no fear, and move out with confidence.
0: So what is missing on the the leadership front? What what would you like to see out of our, our national and state leaders in America these days?
2: Well, national leaders, I've often said in the last six months, where is the Lincoln? You know, the crisis, and we're at a place very close to the crisis before the Civil War, although for different reasons. But you see Lincoln, on his way from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, stops in Philadelphia, makes a great speech at Independence Hall. And he says, in effect, all my thinking comes from the two documents that came from this building. And he finishes his speech, quoting Psalm 137. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I betray these things. That's what he says in effect. In other words, an incredible sense of history, where America had come from, how he got into the crisis, and then with courage he tackled it. And, of course, he paid for it with his own life. But you don't have any leaders that I know of in Washington, with one exception, who have an understanding of history like that. Someone who's strikingly different is Senator Ben Sasse,
0: yep, who I... has an
2: extraordinary sense of history and speaks courageously in the light of that. You can't understand America. Uh, you know, I grew up under Winston Churchill. All his speeches are seasoned with the perspective of history, and that was part of the greatness, along with his courage and other things, of his visionary statesmanship that's lacking today. Americans
0: have an appalling sense of history. I just saw Ben Sass interviewed on Charlie Rose, and he really impressed me. He's, he's come out with a book recently, and he's sort of addressing this very issue of, you know, this the type of people we're raising a, a, as a nation and uh, how people need to, in a sense, grow up. I want to make sure we have enough time for you to issue a call to action. We've got about a minute and 30 seconds what would you, what's on your heart? What would you like to share with people? How would you like to challenge them to, to step forward, make a change and do something to make an impact for, for our country?
2: Well, you started with the notion of calling. None of us can do any more than be faithful in our callings. And it's not that things are so urgent that we should all get into politics or all go to the media or whatever. If those are our callings, then we should be in politics or the media or whatever but the main thing is to be faithful in our callings but above all we need to have a real recovery of the knowledge of the Lord and in the light of that a fresh confidence in the gospel in our faith and moving out with a clear ability to speak on behalf of him with courage and so on this is an extraordinary moment not for fear not for the faint hearted but for those who know their Lord and can move out with courage extraordinary moment i'm extremely hopeful
1: that this has been great oz thank you uh for joining us tonight here in the dc area thank you for the work you're doing to promote awareness uh, the importance of calling of purpose of really digging deep to find one's higher purpose even 20 30 years into a career you know and to address these issues that arise today if listeners want to find out more about Oz Guinness, please check him out on the web at ozguinness.com. That's O-S-G-U-I-N-N-E-S-S dot com. We'll also be posting information on these resources on our Facebook, Twitter, and social media pages. A replay of this show can be found at the grayson 30com website and W-E-R-A 24 hours after airing tonight. Ed, my friend, talk us out of this one.
0: This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Everybody have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.